0: Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Witty. Get ready to go against the grain. Michelle, wow, yeah. lots in the news again. Oh, my heavens.
1: Just keeps coming. Just keeps happening. It's kind uh, of a typical
0: Thursday, I guess.
1: I guess. I mean, I don't know. Is a typical Thursday sort of like can't stop, won't stop antagonizing China (laughs) Uh, approach from this White House? I know, right? Some of the big news. I mean, these talks had been announced in the summer, but now or, you know, the, the negotiations preceding them had been announced earlier. But now, you know, the White House is saying, yes, we are entering into more formal trade negotiations with Taiwan which China's not too happy about.
0: You know, when you think about it too, I, I've been thinking about this since I heard the, uh, the announcement, um, we've got extensive, uh, trade relations with Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan semiconductor is one of the largest companies in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it produces something like 90 something percent of all the semiconductor chips that are used in American vehicles. um, our trade relationship with Taiwan right now is good and it's healthy. Yep. Why Why change it? Why even formalize it when you're not going to get anything more out of it other than to provoke the Chinese?
1: I mean, I think the idea, is, and yeah, I was surprised actually. It, CBS and the New York Times both, of course, reported on this, as did a lot of other sources. Um, but between the two of them, they say that Taiwan is either the U.S.'s eighth or ninth largest biggest uh, t- largest trading partner. Wow, um, which is surprising, right? Considering yeah, I'm it is surprised a very by that. it's a very small island. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, by far, Taiwan's biggest trading partner is China. Which makes sense because it's right across the Taiwan Strait. It's right there, and it has all kinds of stuff that Taiwan wants, and it has a huge market, increasingly so, for what Taiwan produces. That's so right. that is a natural relationship and one that doesn't get discussed very much. And I think the idea here is to. Try to pull some of that trade away from Beijing, send it, you know, to to the United States um, and, you know, create less of a reliance uh, for Taiwan on China Mm -hmm. in, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. And looking ahead to a time when uh, relations worsen, maybe maybe uh, to a really catastrophic degree.
0: I just don't. I'm I, Here I am repeating myself again. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about this for weeks. I don't understand what the United States hopes to gain by continually provoking the Chinese. It doesn't I mean, I make think, sense to me.
1: I think what they hope to get, I don't know, but it seems to me that the, the answer is there in the provocation. They hope to provoke China into doing something militarily. So then the U.S. can say, Look, this is all China's fault. China's been the belligerent here all along. And in the meantime, yeah. the United States continues to broaden and deepen our ties with Taiwan while always saying, oh, but by the way, these aren't formal ties. And so, you know, I predict mm-hmm. this will be followed by yet another tweet from Ned Price or somebody else at the State Department mm-hmm. saying, no, no, no. Hey, one China policy is still a thing. We're still really into it. Don't pay any attention. None of this means anything, because else we can still mouth the words one China policy. And China is supposed to be mollified by this. Right? China is not very happy about it, uh, said it, it opposes any official exchanges between any country and what it calls the Taiwan region of China. Uh, and so, yeah, they're going to see this as a provocation, probably not as as big a one as Nancy Pelosi's trip there, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's just continuing this pattern. You would think they would want to give it a break for a minute. Yeah,
0: yeah you'd think. Yeah. There's an awful lot going on domestically as well. We're gonna we're gonna get to a lot of it with our guests vis a vis Donald Trump and the Trump organization and and mm-hmm. such. W- one thing is that uh, there's a hearing today on releasing the search warrant. Yep. Uh, neither one of us are are, you know, insiders on this issue. But uh, I, I'm really very, very curious to see what the judge decides. The Justice Department is adamant that the that the affidavit not be released. They say it contains myriad classified uh, uh, revelations and that it would be it would be um uh, security violation, essentially, to release the information that it would jeopardize future investigations, they said. It might reveal sources mm-hmm. and methods. But honestly, I don't think they're going to convince anybody of anything unless they re- they release the document and let people read this mm-hmm. thing for themselves. Mm-hmm.
1: The other thing is, I it seems like Contrary to the early reporting yesterday that the Trump organization, former CFO Alan uh, Weisselberg is going to what I'm seeing now is he is going to testify if called right. at any criminal trial right. of the Trump organization, which, you know, we talked yesterday about how, you know, giving him five months in, in jail and uh, no no flipping on Trump organization seemed like it was too, too good to make any kind of sense. Right. And so maybe the reason it didn't make any sense is because that was not how it was going to go down. Right. Um, but I don't know what to make of, you know, he will testify if called. I'm not sure if there's some, if that like implies some kind of caveat to this or well, I don't know. I don't know how hard this well, clip is. I,
0: I think I figured it out, actually. All right. Um, I think that he is going to testify against the Trump organization, but won't testify against Trump. Hmm. because hmm. The, the real criminal charges are against the company. And this happens every once in a while. You know, this is a way for, for prosecutors to go after a big fish, but not really do damage to the big fish, not personally. So what yeah. they could do is to find the Trump organization guilty of multiple felonies, and then that results in a big fine. But it doesn't directly affect Donald Trump. And I think that's what we're looking at here.
1: I mean, it seems. I mean, sure, whatever. A Trump organization also seems like a bad organization, but it does seem to me like a weird choice then. Yeah. To, to go after the organization and not the guy at the head of it, if he's who you really want. Exactly. You know. Yes. And I mean, I guess it's, it's goes to the question of what do they really want? Do we really? Does anyone really want or care to punish Donald Trump for financial crimes? This again uh, the the point seems to be to just make him. Um, you know, render him unable in, in to take part in political processes yeah. in the United States. Yeah. Um, but that's disappointing, right? I want to see people go down for for financial crimes if they've been committed. And as I've said, hard to believe they haven't been committed. Hard yeah, to believe. I agree. Yeah. I agree. This um, is
0: something that I think a lot of people are going to be disappointed with on one side or the other.
1: Yeah. Can I clear up something uh, completely meaningless, but that has been bothering me? Jeez. Remember, we talked about squat toilets and um, <laughs> the, that courthouse news article that you yeah. know was surprisingly refreshing and sane on this sure. conflict in Ukraine. I was recalling reporters traveling in Russia talking about um, talking about encountering squat toilets. Um, and I was thinking that it might—it was must have been when Russia hosted the World Cup, but of course it wasn't because I knew I was in Kazakhstan at the time. It was when they hosted the Olympics. The Olympics in 2014, Sochi Olympics, and now my personal timeline makes sense because I was like, "This wasn't—I wasn't, this, I, I wasn't <laughs> sitting in my Kazakh living room in 2018 thinking this." <laughs> so for everyone who who was disturbed by the you know inconsistencies in my personal timeline, there you go. There you go. And also I don't think Russia hosted any world cup games that far South. I think the world cup games were like in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Yeah, I
0: think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, What Um, else are we talking about today? We're going to talk about Mexico. I think.
1: uh, I saw this story about Mexico. We're going to talk about, no, we're going to talk about um, France and Mali trading accusations. The French troops left Mali, formally left Mali like two days ago Mm -hmm. after having been involved in the country since 2013. Um, fighting terrorism. And now, what do you know, uh, the new government in Mali, Mali's had two military coups in the last couple of years, and uh, the government there right now is accusing the French of arming terrorist groups. Oh, um, France is saying, that's absurd. These guys are our enemies. Uh, I want to talk to our guest about how clear-cut any of this stuff is, because, of course, we know um, Al-Qaeda is America's sworn enemy, except in Syria and maybe kind of in Libya, and, you know. Wherever it's convenient, so I think it's a it's a good opportunity to get into the I think really overlooked role that France plays mm. both on the African continent and elsewhere mm-hmm. in, in the world. Mm-hmm. We forget about France as a player, but the French are out there ruthlessly pursuing their own national interests, just like everybody else. Yeah. So we're going to get into that. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about this messy election in Kenya. Uh, there is a story about disability, poverty, and medically assisted suicide in Canada that I have been wanting to talk about for the last month. And so I'm really excited to be able to get into it now because basically um, at the same time, Canada has been expanding who is allowed to apply for medically assisted suicide Mm -hmm. and also been facing complaints from disabled people that the support they get from the government, the financial support, is simply not enough for them to be able to live in any kind of comfort and dignity. Mm -hmm. Uh, No support in any province in Canada for disabled people would have them living above the poverty line. And you can imagine if you're a disabled person, you know, you, you have to pay for a lot more things. There's a lot less you can do for yourself. There's yeah. more care that you need that you have to pay for. Yeah. And so the convergence of these two issues is resulting in some really ugly stories of uh, disabled people or the parents of disabled people oh. um, being told. Uh, without requesting it, about the possibilities of of euthanasia and uh, saying that this is is starting to get coercive and really ugly. And you've even had uh, U.N. disability rights advocates saying this really creates a situation where it could be horribly abused and removes protections for disabled people. Because simply being disabled shouldn't mean your life is so uncomfortable that suicide seems like the only option. And the state shouldn't be facilitating that. Yeah,
0: you're absolutely Um, right.
1: So I'm pumped about that. No, there was a there was a story about Mexico and energy that I saw in the New York Times yesterday that it jumped out to me. Um the Times would like us to think that uh it is Mexico that is standing in the way of the climate's uh, or the planet's climate goals because AMLO just celebrated a new oil refinery that hasn't yet begun work or anything. And I think it is very interesting that what is what is uh you know, exciting their ire is a refinery, right? It's not Mexico planning to expand, pulling oil out of the ground or anything. It's just that they are in in the midst of this program to achieve some energy independence, which means refining their own oil and not sending it to the United States Uh to be refined and sold back to them at much higher prices. And so, you know, the story is, Written to say, like, oh yeah, the the whole world is you know uh, shifting back toward fossil fuels, and it's really you know it's really unfortunate. But also, what Amlo is doing is especially bad because he's undercutting you know renewable energy projects and blah blah blah. And I just, anytime you read this stuff, you just, I think you really have to have in the back of your mind this idea that it is it is not in the interests of the United States for countries we buy resource from resources from to be refining their own resources. Yeah. And that I think is always the context. They don't give a damn about the planet or about what kind of energy Mexico consumes. It's, are you selling us raw material so we can sell them back to you and get money from you? Or are you trying to do this on your own? Cause we don't like the latter. Yes. And sort of concurrent with that uh, is a story in the guardian that caught my eye uh, yesterday that had their, I guess the UK has a food czar who is saying the only way to avoid ecological collapse in the UK is for people to eat less meat. And, you know, even though this is politically toxic, Mm -hmm. this is what we really have to do Mm -hmm. to meet our climate and biodiversity uh, targets. And, you know, Hey, I don't eat meat. I haven't eaten meat in Mm -hmm. more than 20 years. I think everybody should eat less meat. Mm -hmm. Absolutely but i also think it is pretty ridiculous to to look around look at who is actually destroying our environments around the world right and look at the companies that are getting paid very handsomely to do exactly that yeah. and then turn to the, the population of the uk who live in rates of poverty that people really forget oh, yeah. and i can't remember off the top of my head what it is right now but it's something enormous it but something like a third of families this winter are going to be impoverished yeah. by their energy bills. That's right. You know, so look at them and say, Hey, you know what? You, you really shouldn't eat any more hamburgers guys. Mm-hmm. You are the problem. You are why the environment is being degraded. And there's a reason people look at this and think, screw you. You know what I mean? Like why you, you want to take away my McDonald's. And I think a lot of the people who get mad at this don't necessarily make that leap to, to identifying necessarily the real, the real culprits. Right. But that doesn't mean that we, we shouldn't and can't, and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't recognize that. I think especially as people, you know, as people's lives are more and more precarious and luxuries harder and harder to come by, uh, to tell them, what you have to do is is you know practice more personal asceticism to save the planet while you know Rio Tinto can go around chopping the tops off mountains and yeah. blowing up prehistoric yeah. caves and the like it is ridiculous and people are right to to think you know there's a fast one being pulled on them with this
0: you know i i'm still marveling over the vast amounts of water that are required to raise beef cattle mm-hmm. if we did away or not even did away. If we reduce the amount of beef that we eat, and the amount of of walnuts is another thing, or almonds even more that we eat, it would have a significant effect on the uh, on the environment. You know, California yeah. with the with the drought that California is experiencing right now, mm-hmm. if they just stopped cultivating almonds. Uh, it would be a dramatic difference. This is a crazy thing. The history
1: thing. of almond cultivation in California is not one of the people demanding almonds. No,
0: no, and not businesses.
1: at all. Simply following that demand, it's a story of corruption at the highest levels mm-hmm. among some of the wealthiest people there. The diversion of water that should have been going for for other uses to this, yeah, incredibly wasteful uh, kind of mm-hmm. agriculture, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, corporate interest being protected uh, above all else for decades and decades. And so, yeah, this is this is exactly. I, I think everyone should eat less meat, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, um, but. Well, I had a point I was going to make, John, We're talking about and water not, and almonds. It. Oh, but you know The other thing is, but you know, when you look at like all of this metals mining, cobalt mining, yeah. mm-hmm. mineral mining, mm-hmm. you know, when you're going to tell people eat less meat, sure, we all should. How about also we we look at all these electronics companies that have decided over the last couple of decades that everything should break? In about yeah. three to five years, yeah. right? And maybe say, "Hey, well, what if we? What if we didn't have to pull quite so much cobalt and lithium and other metals out of the ground to make these products that you have designed to fall apart, so they have to Mm-mm. be replaced? Mm-hmm. What if we? What if we stop that?" Mm-hmm. But too many important people are making too much money on those projects. So yeah. instead, well. again, it's these—it's uh, Joe Schmo with his bangers and mash—that's the problem. Yeah. Right.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Right. I—I um, I know that. Well, tell me, tell me if if you want to talk about this at the end of the show. You you've been following this art uh, situation. Uh, oh, Cambodia. yeah. Let's this is so that. important. Oh, you want to save it Let's till the end of the about show? That at
1: the end of the show. Okay. Let's get To our next guest and talk about uh, this trip by the president of Turkey and the UN Secretary yeah. General to Ukraine and get into some other important foreign policy issues.
0: Sounds good. We're going to do that. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We've got a full show today with Elijah Manier, Abiyomi Azikwe. We have Ted Raw and Anthony Omeni, who is a a new uh, guest. We're gonna we're gonna introduce you to. We're live in D.C. We're going to take a short break and come right back. Back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiryaku here with Michelle Witty. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres and Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan are meeting with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in Ukraine today to discuss grain shipments, fighting near the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, and the possibility of a diplomatic end to the war with Russia, at least. 25 Ukrainian ships ships have left port laden with grain since Turkey, with UN backing, negotiated an agreement between Russia and Ukraine to get those ships out. Meanwhile, a NATO spokesman said that the alliance is ready to increase the size of its peacekeeping force in Kosovo in the event that tensions continue to escalate with neighboring Serbia. A conflict over the issuance of license plates, of all things, will likely come to a head next month. An explosion today killed at least 21 people in a mosque in Kabul. This was not an example of sectarian violence between Sunni and Shia Muslims. Instead, it appears to be an attack against Sunnis by ISIS, which is also a Sunni group. Why? Because ISIS thinks that the Taliban are not radical enough. We're joined by Elijah Manier. He's a veteran war journalist with 35 years experience in Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Libya, Sudan, and of course, Yugoslavia. Welcome back, Elijah. Good to have you.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Elijah, let's begin with uh, the visit to Ukraine of the U.N. Secretary General and the Turkish president. The rumor in foreign policy circles here in Washington is that this visit is all about initiating a peace process between Ukraine and Russia. Grain and nuclear security are peripheral. They're secondary. That may be why Zelensky made an unsolicited statement earlier this week Uh, when he said that Ukraine will not even consider peace talks with Russia until the Russians leave Donbass and Crimea. This seems like a non-starter, and it's likely, at least eventually, to anger NATO countries. So what are your thoughts? It seems that the Ukrainians eventually will have to give up territory, but Zelensky is steadfast. What do you think?
2: I think Zelensky is just trying to improve his position as a negotiator Ah. because— For many indications we've seen, first of all, the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres will not go to Ukraine and start showing that the UN is involved unless the West is pushing him to start the negotiation and to end this war. Otherwise, we always have seen the UN has a very marginal or no role whatsoever until something is shown or in which direction the battle was going, and because Russia is winning the war. So now we have the UN is involved, and Turkey, as a very important NATO member, is also involved in uh, finding a solution where everybody is uh, can, can come out uh, with less damage possible. That makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. Do you expect anything
0: substantive to coming out of these, uh, to come out of, the, out of these talks? If Guterres and Erdogan
2: aren't also meeting with Putin, what should we expect? Well, if we see that the Russians have allowed so far 625,000 tons of yes. grain leaving yes. Ukraine to be sold, because 50, 17 of the 25 ships went to rich countries like yes. the UK, like yes. Ireland, like Turkey— and they were paid for to the Ukrainians. So for Russia to accept that Ukraine collects some money, it means the negotiation has started even before the trilateral meeting today in Lviv in the western uh, Ukraine. Secondly, yes, of course, but in my experience in a war zone, not always the first meetings are successful, but they prepare the ground for further meeting to start de-escalating or perhaps improving the position of one side on another. At the end of the day, Ukraine said it has lost around 200,000 men between wounded and killed, Mm -hmm. 50 killed and around 140 to 150 wounded, and it can't continue the war forever, while Russia, it looks very um, uh, determined to continue to achieve its objective.
0: Yeah, we're seeing reports today that um, there's a problem within the Ukrainian military where where people are shooting themselves in the leg because it not only gets them out of fighting, but it gets them a $50,000 uh, bonus
2: and that they're beginning to run short on men. Then I said, I'm, I'm not surprised no. because this war is useless and it is actually a war between Russia and the US on the Ukrainian soil. Oh, I agree. I agree very much. There are worries in
0: Washington, Elijah, and in Brussels that there could be problems ahead in Kosovo. Uh, This is a place where you spent a great deal of time. And this all comes out of a Kosovar decision to begin insisting that license plates for cars owned by ethnic Serbs must now be issued by the Kosovo government rather than by the Serbian government. Since the war, they've been issued by Serbia. A decision to postpone the implementation of this was made last month, but it's coming to a head again in September. This seems like such a silly problem to me, uh, but it could still lead to war. You've worked in this region. Do you think negotiations can fix this, or do you expect
2: hostilities? Well, I don't expect hostility. I expect mm. the situation to remain as it is. So you have to. we have to understand that the... Dialogue that the eu facilitated between Kosovo and Serbia started in two thousand and eleven, and it's all over unresolved technical issues like as you rightly said the uh, the license plate or ritual recognition of university diploma etc and there's very little progress has been made since however, there is panic in Europe because everybody thinks that there is going to be Another war on European soil, particularly after the war in Ukraine. And that's why Europe is on the edge and everybody is on alert talking about it. However, the real situation in Kosovo is that Kosovo wants to exert a, a increased influence over the ethnic Serbian majority in the north of the country only because there is a new prime minister, Albin Kurti. He took office last year and believe that the local NATO-led peacekeeping forces, known as KFOR, can guard and defend his country against Serbia that is considered pro-Russia. So it is kind of uh, uh, really hassling the same Kosovorian that are living in the country and asking them to uh, for special entry document if they come via Serbia or to change their license plate for the car. Mm-hmm. This is really silly when the we know that the Serbian dinar is widely used in the north of Kosovo. Belgrade continue, surprisingly, to finance the health and education system of the people of Kosovo in the north. And uh, many of the residents in the area that I know of have Serbian citizenship. So mm-hmm. they, also, they live in Kosovo, but we've seen the special police, uh, the special European police, all that concentrated in the north because these people are pro-Serbian and because Serbia is not an enemy of Russia. That's the whole deal.
0: Yeah. Uh, You know, these problems between Kosovo and Serbia are so much deeper than just a license plate. Uh, We mentioned the last time you were on the show that uh, many Serbians consider Kosovo to be, or at least the Serbian parts of Kosovo, to be almost akin to the Holy Land. There are a great number of Serbian Orthodox monasteries there this is very very important territory for them. Do you see the possibility that the license plates that the uh, uh, what do you call it the uh, foreign policy of of Kosovo could cause some sort of a deeper rift? between Kosovo's Muslims and Kosovo's Christians? uh, Do you think there's any chance that this war or a variation of this war that that was fought in the 1990s
2: might be refought? Look, I was in Yugoslavia, in the former Yugoslavia during the war. And um, when I was in Sarajevo, for example, the people who used to frequent the mosque was two or three people. These people have the name of Muslim, Muslim names. They're really not real fanatic believers in Islam. And we've seen the bombing of mutual uh, churches on both sides mm-hmm. between Croatian uh, uh, Bosniak and Serbian Bosniak. So it's all that, it has nothing to do with religion. It is really rooted, in my opinion, because NATO is saying we are going to intervene if stability is jeopardized. And because Kosovo's prime minister believed that he's protected by NATO, so he had the strength. He is. He has applied to become a NATO member. EU is welcoming him. Wherever they think the Europeans and the Americans think there is a trace of a Russian influence, they just mm-hmm. jump in and try to oppress the population, unaware that will, this would will flare back against them. Mm-hmm. So allow the Kosovoian to live among themselves as they used to live without any problem. That's right. And suddenly, That's because right. of number plate of university diploma or special permit to come from Serbia to Kosovo, all this is ridiculous. It's just really superficial. However, deep down the line is uh, the greatest picture is really the struggle of influence between the United States and the friends of Russia, but not Russia. Yeah.
0: We're used to seeing reports, uh, Elijah, of attacks and explosions in mosques in Afghanistan and Pakistan. It's a terrible thing, but it happens with some frequency. It's almost always Sunni Muslims blowing up or attacking Shia mosques. But that's not what happened in Kabul today. It was ISIS blowing up a Sunni mosque. Do you think Afghans are headed for a civil war between the Taliban and a more radical element? associated with the, the Islamic
2: State? No, I don't think so, because the Islamic State, or ISIS of ISIL, has declared war on all the other uh, sects in Islam, including the Sunni that are uh, in disagreement with its own ideology. And we have seen how the Americans, because I was in Syria and I covered the Syrian war for many years... At the end of the day, when the Americans controlled northeast Syria, they shipped all the ISIS that were willing to travel and took them to Afghanistan to fight the Taliban because the Americans were not capable of winning over the Taliban. Mm. And ISIS is the enemy of Taliban. And because they are very few, they're not a large number, Taliban is in control of the country. However, for ISIS, there is a reason in their own interpretation of Islam, that they can kill anyone, including Muslim Sunnis, who are incompatible with their explanation of the Quran. Therefore, they consider Taliban is—deserves um, to be killed. This is why they go and put a bomb inside the mosque, if it is Sunni or Shia in Yemen or in Afghanistan or in Syria or in Iraq. For them, it's exactly the same. They have no strategy and no purpose in this war, but to kill. However, their objective has failed. They can't create a state, and that is over.
0: Yeah. One last question for you. Uh, this has been such a strange event. Uh, I I want to talk for a moment about Lebanon. A man earlier this week uh, took hostages in a bank uh, because the bank wouldn't let him withdraw the $210,000 that he had in an account there. After some negotiations, the man was allowed to withdraw half of his money. The police arrested him very briefly, but then he was released without charge. Uh, it looks to me like this was an example of great frustration because of the failure of the country's economy and political system. We've been watching Lebanon slowly fall apart for years now. Does it look to you? like Lebanon is becoming a failed state. What do you think the prospects are for an economic or, or political collapse there?
2: It's really complicated to explain what's happening in Lebanon in such a brief time. Mm. However, I'll try my best. In 2019, the problem in Lebanon started because everything to cripple Hezbollah in Lebanon didn't uh, reach an end that is uh, a happy end for the israelis and the americans so what they have started they impose sanctions on lebanon to cripple its economy it is not a failed state because it has a government it has a prime minister it has security forces and still the country is not divided it requires much more element to create a failed state however the country is not allowed to use the us dollar in ex- in exchanging and goods buying without the approval for approval of the U.S. administration, and in this case, the U.S. ambassador in Lebanon. So the governor of the central bank is really uh, under the mercy of the U.S. decision, allowing him to use the U.S. dollar whenever it is suitable for the Americans. This is why the Americans closed up on Lebanon, prevented the support of the Arabs and international national community. Emmanuel Macron, the French minister, a president, went to Lebanon trying to help. And then he was told off by the American to keep away. So Lebanon is not the destination to become a failed state, but it is not supposed to be uh, floating on the surface. It has to sink. It has to be crippled, but not to the point where it will lose the total control, because mm-hmm. when it is, will lose the total control, then other forces can come in to the point that We know that uh, that Russia and China try to make offers to Lebanon to rebuild the infrastructure, to bring gas and oil, because there is no electricity today in Lebanon, more than one hour every 24 hours. And everything, all the uh, financial institutions are on the ground. But the Americans stop that because the America has... A lot of influence in the country. They're not offering the alternative. They said they would offer the alternative, but they're not. Mm-hmm. So, Lemedon is destined to remain as it is, struggling to keep its head above the water without sinking, but without really going safely to the shore.
0: I spoke with a Lebanese journalist, two Lebanese journalists this morning, and uh, I think they are as confused as many of us are as to what the immediate future holds for their country. This is certainly an issue that we'll come back to. Thank you, Elijah Manier, for joining us. Elijah is a veteran war journalist with more than 35 years experience in Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Libya, Sudan, and Yugoslavia, the world's hotspots You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We will take a short break and come right back.
1: Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and I am very interested in getting into what is turning into a messier and messier situation between Mali and France, with the Malian government accusing France of, arming terrorists. And France saying, absolutely not. How dare you even suggest it? We are also going to talk about the messy presidential election in Kenya. And if we have some time, catch up on the conflict in Ethiopia and get into why the head of the WHO has uh, said that the world is forgetting about it. Joining us for this conversation is Abayomi Azikiwe. he's editor of the Pan-African Newswire. Thank you for joining us again.
3: Well, thank you for the invitation again.
1: Let's start with France and Mali. Um, I was saying at the start of the show that I think the United States really—we forget how active France is in a lot of parts of Africa. Uh, and just a couple days ago, France announced that its last troops had left Mali after a nine-year operation. And following military coups in 2020 and 2021, that really worsened the relationship between Paris and the Malian governments. But following this withdrawal, the new-ish Malian leadership has accused France of violating Mali's airspace and arming terrorist groups. France 24 story on the topic says Paris has spent a decade and billions of dollars trying to, quote, stamp out these groups. And the French embassy in Mali says France has obviously never supported, directly or indirectly, these terrorist groups, which remain its designated enemies across the planet, which is a pretty— strong rebuttal of these accusations. But the United States also says Al-Qaeda is our designated enemy around the planet. But that is definitely not the case in Syria. I think arguably not not the case in Libya uh, for some periods of time. And so, you know, I might be being too cynical, but I, I wanted to ask you what, what people should make of these accusations and what we should know about the relationship between France and Mali to understand them.
3: I believe that people should be highly skeptical about the uh, pronouncements of uh, Emmanuel Macron, uh, the current president of France. Uh, He went to Cameroon, and he was highly critical of Russia, uh, China, uh, saying that there's a threat of recolonization in Africa coming from Beijing and Moscow. Uh, This is an absurd assertion to make, uh, because France had a long history— of enslavement of African people. We all remember the Haitian Revolution uh, beginning in 1791 to 1804. It was the most prosperous slave colony in the world uh, during that time period. France owned uh, considerable amounts of uh, land in the continental United States, what today is considered the continental United States, which they lost during the so-called Louisiana Purchase, which was prompted by the losses during the Haitian Revolution. Uh, we remember in Libya in 2011, uh, there were al-Qaeda allied organizations that served as ground forces uh, while the Pentagon and NATO uh, bombed Libya for some seven straight months, uh, killing its long uh, longtime leader, uh, displacing millions of people. And those people uh, were clearly uh, some of the same folks they would consider as being terrorists uh, on a normal day within the U.S. Congress and in the White House. Uh, So people should be highly critical of what uh, Macron is saying in regard uh, to his recent visit uh, to Africa. You also uh, had questions about Mali. Well, there was a military coup—in fact, two military coups in the country uh, over the last uh, two years, and yet uh, France uh, has been there in great numbers since 2013. Uh, Their Mm. occupation was facilitated by the United States Africa Command, which already had operations uh, in Mali. And uh, since that time period, the security situation has worsened in Mali. It has not improved. And the same jihadist organizations uh, that have been attacking Mali have also uh, moved their operations into Burkina Faso and uh, other countries uh, in the region. So I think it's a legitimate uh, conclusion. Uh, that France is playing a dubious game in Africa right alongside uh, the United States.
1: I also wonder, um, you know, there's a lot of hand-wringing, I think, in in the West about, you know, the the erosion of these relationships between African governments and, you know, France, for example, and other Western governments, and instead— uh, you know, accusations that the Malian government is turning to uh, military contractors like Russia's Wagner Group uh, as allies in this fight against terrorism, and I wonder if, if you know, this sort of plays into this idea of Africa reemerging as an area of um, uh, competition between the West on one side and Russia and China on the other. But also, you know, what does it say if it is true that these governments are choosing to shift their partnerships away from um, state governments to these kinds of private contractors? Uh, That also seems like, you know, that could open a different can of worms.
3: It can. And uh, people should be critical and skeptical in of, of regard to all these uh, agreements that are being signed, uh, cooperation uh, between uh, Africa and uh, various uh, European countries. Nonetheless, uh, France has maintained a military presence in Africa uh, even during the colonial period. And even after the independence of most of the uh, former colonies, particularly in West Africa, uh, they maintained a military presence. They maintained an economic presence through the CFA Frank zone. Uh, they have huge investments, for example, in Niger, uh, which is uh, bordering uh, Mali. They, uh, in fact, uh, have uh, control of the uranium industry there. Uh, the company uh, which controls that uh, uranium deposits— Uh, French—is a French firm. Uh, So, you cannot say uh, that they are totally objective uh, when they talk about their interests uh, in Africa. And it's not surprising that African governments, even military governments that were not elected, uh, that seized power uh, through uh, force of arms, are looking uh, to uh, the Wagner Group in Russia and possibly other corporations and governments for assistance in dealing with the internal security crisis that exists in these countries. Uh, these uh, organizations, such as al-Qaeda, uh, the Islamic State, were born uh, in U.S. counterinsurgency operations against governments which were considered enemies of uh, Washington. Look at Afghanistan, the actual history of Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Al-Qaeda developed out of the fight of uh, the United States against Ah, uh, the Soviet-backed government in Afghanistan during the late 1970s, and during the late and during the 1980s, and we can also uh, look at uh, the birth of the Islamic State uh, when they were fighting against Iranian influence in Iraq, and in an effort to overthrow the government of Bashar al-Assad in Syria. So they're willing to use these groups as cannon fodder uh, when it's when it's advantageous for them to use them, and then they'll turn around and kill them. Uh, and use that as political capital, where we've seen the recent uh, assassination of uh, the head of al-Qaeda and also uh, other assassinations, high-profile assassinations that have taken place over the last several months uh, by the United States. So it's a very vicious game that's being played by both uh, Washington as well as Paris.
1: Mali has requested a U.N. Security Council meeting on this subject. And I just wonder you know, how, how fair a hearing you expect them to get, how you expect that to go down.
3: I think it's important that they're calling for one. Uh, whether it happens, it remains to be seen, and what the outcome of it uh, will be will be quite interesting, because I'm sure France will object uh, to any uh, proposals put forward uh, before the U.N. Security Council by Mali, because they're loggerheads with the current military regime in Mali. Uh, the United States, uh, in all likelihood, will oppose it as well. Uh, Russia uh, will, in most cases, probably uh, support it. Uh, so. There's so much uh, division right now in the United Nations period, and particularly in the United Nations Security Council, over the Ukrainian issue and over other issues. Uh, We have to think back earlier this year uh, when a number of African countries abstained uh, in two resolutions uh, calling for the condemnation of Russia for its special military operations in Ukraine. Uh, So, the U.S. is very concerned— about uh, the African Union member states, even though these states are dependent on trade from the United States and other Western countries, uh, many of them right now are not willing to go along uh, with this new uh, Cold War against Russia and against China, because they realize it's not going to benefit uh, the African continent. While the United States has been building up its military apparatus, its armaments, its occupations of various geopolitical regions around the world, uh, Russia, uh, Ukraine, the People's Republic of China, and other states have been uh, escalating their production of technology, uh, transportation infrastructure, uh, agricultural uh, products, agricultural inputs. If you look at uh, the uh, dependence, if you even want to call it dependence, or actual trade between Russia and uh, several African countries in regard to agricultural products, it far exceeds uh, that of the United States. Uh, The level of investment and trade between China and the African Union member states now far exceeds the United States. So the only uh, entree that the United States has, as well as France right now, is uh, their financial dominance over the international banking system, and also uh, their military prowess, which is already stretched thin uh, across the world.
1: I also want to ask about uh, another story that's been getting a bunch of attention, and that is this election in Kenya. Uh, The results of Kenya's presidential election were announced Monday, but the official loser in what appears to be a pretty close race— is rejecting the results. Uh, so the the electoral commission declared Deputy President William Ruto the winner of the election, saying he got fifty point, basically fifty point five percent of the vote, and challenger Rayla Odinga got forty eight, almost forty nine percent. Which to me is a pretty small margin. Um, a lot of the Western reporting on this election has praised Kenyan democracy, uh, you know, presenting it as a beacon for the region and lamenting this, quote, speed bump, uh, which it was called. So Odinga is challenging these election results. Um, and I, I just wonder what, you know, what, what what does this disputed election mean for Kenyan democracy and for Kenyans? Is Odinga, does he maybe have any justification for uh, disputing these election results, or is he just, you know, riding a trend? Of- of disputing elections and and causing trouble.
3: It's not surprising that he's challenging uh, the results. He's done he's done this several times before. Five years ago, uh, he and his supporters went to the Kenyan Supreme Court. They actually won a ruling uh, for a rerun of the elections. However, uh, as the election campaigning proceeded, uh, he withdrew uh, from the elections. And uh, Uhuru Kenyatta, who is the current president won the 2017 elections by even a larger uh, margin. Uh, So it's not surprising. He has that right within the uh, Kenyan constitutional law uh, to do that. Uh, And uh, it is good so far that there has not been any significant violence inside the country. Uh, Perhaps Kenyans realize that they need to focus on the economic development, the social development of the country, Uh, the turnout. Uh, for the elections, uh, which were held earlier this month, was way down from what it was uh, five years ago. Uh, Mm -hmm. The reports that I've heard is that it was approximately 60 percent of the registered voters who actually turned up and voted. So, this is a clear indication uh, that people have other priorities uh, right now. The COVID-19 pandemic, the economic slowdown, has, uh, of course, uh, had a tremendous impact on Kenya. They heavily rely on tourism Uh, from various uh, parts of the world, uh, including other parts of Africa, uh, from Europe. Uh, They're also involved heavily in agricultural production, and there's a drought, severe drought that is spreading right now uh, throughout East Africa. It's impacted Kenya, Somalia, as well as Ethiopia. And also, uh, they uh, employ people in light industrial production, uh, which also is down uh, because of the uh, lack of demand due to the economic downturn uh, around the world, but this is a global problem. Even here in the mm-hmm. United States, technically we're in a recession because there's been two consecutive terms of negative economic growth. Even though the Biden administration pretends as if uh, you know the, there's no recession going on right now, mm-hmm. and he even passed a uh, they even passed an anti-inflation bill that included. Uh, 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 measures dealing with climate change, as well as uh, prescription drugs and other things, but it is a worldwide <clears throat> economic crisis that's taking place right now. And hopefully, uh, Raila Odinga uh, will um, not provoke you know his followers uh, to uh, engage in any type of violence. What's interesting about this election is that uh, people often look at uh, ethnic factors. Uh, for example, uh, Raila Odinga is from the Luo. Uh, group, which is one of the large uh, ethnic groups in Kenya. Uh, uh, Uhuru Kenyatta is from the Kikuyu, uh, which has a larger number of people uh, than the Luo. However, Uhuru endorsed Ryla Odinga in this election, and he did not endorse uh, William Ruto, who was his uh, deputy president, who apparently they have some type of political disagreements. Uh, But even despite the fact that uh, Uhuru Kenyatta endorsed Rylah Odinga and his party and his coalition, mm-hmm. um, he, it did not uh, result in an overwhelming uh, outpouring of uh, electoral votes for Ryla Odinga. You're mm-hmm. right, it's a very close election. Uh, four members of the electoral boundaries and—independent um, electoral boundaries and um, election commission uh, rejected the results, uh, four mm-hmm. people out of seven. So uh, it's not surprising that uh, Mr. Odinga will go to the Kenyan Supreme Court to try to get a ruling uh, to uh, have a rerun of the elections.
1: Yeah. And it sounds like unsurprising. And as long as it's you know kept sort of between the between the legal gutters. And as you say, there hasn't been there hasn't been violence as a result. Then sometimes you have a close election and you need to take another stab at it. Uh, it's it's yeah, he, interesting he, to, that you um, mentioned. Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead.
3: Oh, I was just going to mention that uh, yesterday the president-elect, uh, William Ruto gave a speech, and he said, uh, you know, Kenyans do not have time to waste. Uh, we need to get down to work. Um, we have to rebuild our economy. We have to stabilize society and so forth. So he's already looking, you know, very presidential.
1: Um, you mentioned, you know, that it is it is very tempting, I think, to break down any conflict to sort of either religious or ethnic um you know, re- religious and ethnic lines. Right. And I think Ethiopia uh, is sort of an interesting example of a country that really has tried Try, you know, trying to unite a bunch of different disparate ethnic groups, having some success, and now, of course, has been uh, in the midst of a war for, I think, the last year or so now. And I wondered if we could get an update on that conflict from you, especially because the, the head of the WHO has been discussing it recently and saying um, the conflict is is being forgotten about and it shouldn't. I think uh, the latest is that the TPLF is actually asking for for some kind of peace deal. So I wonder if you can talk to us about what they want, whether they are serious in this request, whether they're going to get it, and uh, how we should understand the comments of the WHO chief.
3: Well, uh, Dr. Tedros Adhanam Ghebreyesus is Ethiopian, and he is from the Tigray region. Mm -hmm. And uh, he has made statements uh, over the course of the last year and a half during this conflict between the uh, Tigray People's Liberation Front and the central government in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, which has uh, drawn— extreme anger on the part of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed's government. So they feel he's playing into the TPLF propaganda against the Ethiopian government. He did serve as a minister in the Ethiopian government when the TPLF, which led the EPRDF, which was the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, they came to power in 1991. He served as a minister in that government. So. Uh, He he has drawn a considerable amount of ire among uh, the Ethiopian people who support the uh, current government of President Abiy Ahmed. But I think uh, the humanitarian situation in the Tigray region and other regions of Ethiopia is worsening. Earlier I mentioned the drought, uh, the Mm -hmm. overall economic crisis. Uh, Ethiopia has been suspended from the African Growth and Opportunities Act uh, by uh, the current President Joe Biden. Uh, because they disagreed uh, over how the war was being carried out uh, against the TPLF, which was a defensive war. It was the TPLF which controlled Tigray that started the conflict. And um, that is the reality of the situation. So I think that uh, the Biden administration should lift uh, the uh, partial blockade against Ethiopia. Uh, There was legislation, uh, which I understand was suspended Uh, that would have imposed even harsher sanctions on Ethiopia. And this was legislation that's actually been uh, proposed uh, with the support of the Democratic Party within the United States uh, Congress. So I think it's a good thing that uh, the uh, leaders of the TPLF and the government are willing to engage in negotiations. Uh, However, I am questioning the motivation of the uh, TPLF leaders, because they started the war. Uh, The war was not successful. And uh, now they're asking for a humanitarian truce. Uh, And I think the government is willing uh, to go along with that. Uh, But they have to also bring something to the table in terms of uh, their own military mobilizations and their own propaganda against the uh, Ethiopian government.
1: That was Abayami Azikwe. He's editor of the Pan-African Newswire. Do you want to tell our listeners where they can go to find your work and, and find the Pan-African Newswire?
3: Yeah, they can go to our blog at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. Uh, I'm also on Facebook uh, under my name, Abayomi Azikwe. There's also a Pan-African Newswire Facebook. We're also on uh, Instagram. Uh, and uh, we also have a YouTube channel as well. Uh, so uh, all those platforms, uh, we do a, a three-hour—well, actually a six-hour uh, radio podcast every week that deals with African affairs called the Pan-African Journal, a wide radio broadcast so just Google my name and uh, Google the Pan-African Newswire, and you can find all these platforms.
1: Fantastic. And again, thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure we'll talk again soon. We're going to take a break here on Political Misfits, some more domestic and international politics, because there's just so much to get into. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C., and we'll be right back.
0: back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Donald Trump is in a great deal of trouble. We know from the search warrant released following the FBI raid on his Mar-a-Lago residence that the government is considering charging him with violations of the U.S. Code Section 793. That is the Espionage Act. It's the same section that a long line of whistleblowers have been charged under, including Ed Snowden, Julian Assange, Tom Drake, Jeffrey Sterling, and yours truly. Civil libertarians have been trying to reform the Espionage Act since the earliest point in the Obama administration. Will it be Republicans who now get the job done, if even for the wrong reasons? And what about Republican calls to defund the FBI? They're different than calling for defunding the police, I suppose, but is it even possible to defund the FBI? In other news, Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisselberg pleaded guilty today to 15 felony counts related to helping Donald Trump avoid paying taxes. Weisselberg has refused to testify against Trump, but his plea deal requires him to testify against the Trump Organization if called. And finally, the United States and Iran say they're ready for an unconditional prisoner swap, something that hasn't happened since early 2019. And that comes just a day after Iran submitted its final nuclear deal language to the European Union, to which the United States, believe it or not, had no objections. Could we see a new nuclear deal after all? We're joined by Ted Rall. He's an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is called The Stringer, and he's co-host of the DMZ America podcast with Ted Raw and Scott Stantis. Welcome back, Ted. Thanks, John. Ted, a good friend of mine, the whistleblower Tom Drake, has an article in the Atlantic Monthly this month talking about the possibility of espionage charges against Donald Trump. Of course, Trump has almost certainly not committed espionage. But neither did any of the people charged with espionage by both the Trump and the Barack Obama administrations. Uh, The bottom line is that in my case, the judge defined espionage very simply as providing national defense information to any person not entitled to receive it or retaining national defense information when no longer entitled to retain it. And that's pretty clearly what Donald Trump has done. So where do Trump and the Justice Department go from here? Are we really headed into an espionage case against a former president of the United States?
4: Uh, I I hope (laughs) not. And I'm not saying that uh, because, you know, I mean, there's so many ways to look at it. On the one hand, you could say, well, it's one. It would be a a case of no man is above the law, even a former sitting president. And even if the law sucks, uh, it should suckily apply to everyone. Um, You know, I that's one way to look at it. I I I don't really generally think that way. I also think there's a problem with less majesty here. I mean, politically, it is. uh, You know, you shouldn't really kneecap or potentially jail a president or former president, uh, anyone a top official on really what are trivial charges. And even though the Espionage Act. Sounds very impressive uh, because of its name. It's such a broadly construed, as you well know, uh, POS piece of legislation that's over 100 years old. Yeah. Um, and it's been abused so many times that when I was preparing for this segment, uh, my eyes started to just uh, blur as I looked it over all the cases of, of abuse uh, on Wikipedia. I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, I just I thought, well, you know, this is look this law. It, it shouldn't exist. No one should be prosecuted under it. It's toxic as hell. Uh, what Donald Trump did at worst was kind of inappropriate here in terms of mm-hmm. uh, bringing these mm-hmm. documents home uh, to his house that he shouldn't have returned. I mean, you know, we're talking about, you know, a, a drop in the bucket in terms of the tens of thousands of bankers boxes worth of yeah. documents and their digital equivalents that are generated by any presidential administration. Sure. Uh, you know, and so, you know, I mean, it's it's kind of like, go after Donald Trump for sedition. You know, go after him for January 6th. Go after him for that. Um, go after him for his business dealings and his corrupt real estate deals. Don't, you know, this is, it's just, it, this is a, you know, I'm not really sure where this ends up, but nowhere good.
0: Yeah. Um, Ted, Republicans are going to be so outraged if there's an espionage charge against Donald Trump that perhaps this is actually what the country needs to finally reform the Espionage Act. Uh, Democrats have been absolute in their opposition to changing the Espionage Act. The only Republican on record as supporting reform has been Rand Paul, and he's been criticized as weak on national security because of it. Uh, In fact, when he last ran for re-election and said in a debate— that um, he wanted to reform the Espionage Act. His opponent said that she would absolutely not reform the Espionage Act, and if you voted for her, you could count on a strong vote for national security. Uh, Do you think this could force the Republicans as a party, as a congressional caucus, to act and to make espionage what it once was spying for a foreign power it's this section 793 that is so troublesome we're not talking about 794 that the rosenbergs were prosecuted under
4: yeah i mean the you know the the thing the espionage act now is uh, has been uh includes uh sort of what used to be called the sedition act right yes. and and that was and so that's you know nonsense like a guy who made a film during World War 1 that portrayed uh the American Revolution and it showed British troops being cruel to American troops and because the Brits were our ally in World War 1 this filmmaker was imprisoned and fined for uh basically denigrating an American ally yeah. you know an American ally that I mean, it's insanity. Right. And that's what this law is today. I mean, that 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 case has, by the way, never been overturned as far as uh, case law is concerned, is concerned. That was a correct prosecution. Um, So this is a uh, I I'm skeptical that the Republican Party will ever roll back this horrible piece of legislation because it's history. It's sort of like a in case of emergency, please, please, please break glass. For anyone who, like, really during a time of hysteria, like post 9-11 or during the Red Scare of the 1920s or during the McCarthy era, it's like, hey, if you have a political opponent that you'd really like to send to prison for some ridiculous charge, you can pull pull this thing out and use it. And both parties are going to want that at one time or another. You know, certainly Republicans are not immune to it.
0: I can't help but to think that if Trump is not charged with espionage, that it would help the case of Julian Assange, who's awaiting extradition to the United States right now to face the same espionage charges. It all comes down to how the Espionage Act is interpreted. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question that you're probably going to struggle to answer, but why do you think he took the documents in the first place? Today's New York Times has an interesting article where they're, they're speculating that he considered the documents to be his personal property, that the documents were exciting to him, that he wanted to keep them, to use them when he writes his memoirs. Can you offer up some speculation? And I know it's just speculation, but why do you think he would do something like this? He knew what the consequences would be. He was told most recently in June, you can't keep these documents. And he kept them anyway. Why?
4: Well, he has not really always taken the good advice of his wise counselors uh, in, on many occasions, um, and uh, as we well know, in the you know preparations in the run up to January sixth, from the stuff that's come out about what his advisors told him not to do, and uh, lamely to accept the results of the election. Um, I, I think you know, in terms of speculation, I agree. He probably had something like memoirs in mind, um, although you know, how exactly, you know, Donald Trump's never written a book, right? Uh, he, he didn't write the art of the deal. No. It's ghostwritten. Um, Oh, I guess it wasn't technically ghostwritten cause it was a done with, by Donald Trump. Right. With. Um, but you know, he hasn't written a book. Uh, he's, he doesn't, he doesn't have, you know, what it takes to write a book temperamentally. Uh, you know, I don't think he could sit still long enough in a chair to do it. And so, um, you know, but I think maybe that was one of his ideas. He also, uh, I think has a pretty strong um, sense that he might be returning to the White House, like Grover Cleveland, right, uh, for after a four-year interregnum, and he might be like, well, you know, I don't want to file these back because I might need some of these. Um, and I think he, I think he was very obsessed with the idea that the president could declassify abracadabra anything he wants, so he thought that wasn't really an issue. I think that's probably. What did it? I, I do want to push back a little bit against the idea that this would help Assange. Okay. I would like to think it would, but I don't think I don't think that's true. I think it's going to be, you know, viewed as prosecutorial discretion. Mm. You know, just because you get pulled over for going eighty and a fifty and the guy next to you goes by at ninety and the cop doesn't go after him. You know, they have that right to not charge him. And um, I, I think, you know, I, I don't think um, you you. know, you, I mean, certainly politically it would look bad, mm-hmm. but I don't think it would help Assange in a court of law. Mm. God forbid that he faced one in the United States.
1: Can I jump in? I'm curious because I can't remember if we have talked on this show about the speculation that this is related to this uh, scandal in 2019 when Trump was president about him. Uh, trying to rush through the transfer of nuclear technology to the Saudis. And so there's been right. speculation that this is this is about that. This is evidence relating to that. People pointing to this uh, couple billion dollar investment that Jared Kushner got, uh, I think, six months after he left the White House from uh, some Saudi investment firm for one of Jared Kushner's uh, ridiculous failing real estate investments. And I think I, I mean, I, I wonder, Ted, if you heard the speculation and, and what you think about it and the other thing is if this is bit you know again if this is a scandal from 2019 if this is what you were afraid was happening uh it, three years ago why is it taken until now if you are genuinely mm-hmm, worried mm-hmm. about the substance of this Good which is point. the possibility of nuclear technology going to Saudi Arabia which I think would be bad you know um uh, why why again why why raid mar-lago in August 2022?
4: Good point. Well, I mean, this definitely smells like a fishing expedition, right? I mean, uh, these searches always are. And it, whether it was or it wasn't, uh, you know, it, it's going to—it looks political. And uh, there was no way to avoid that. And I'm not even talking about the Republicans' spin on it. Um, there's no telling what they were going to find when they went in there. Uh, I find it a little interesting that they went—by the way, they, they raided Mar-a-Lago, but not Trump Tower— um, Interesting. You know, I just mm-hmm. I mean, Trump, he's he spends more time there. I would expect him to have, um, you know, to, to have more documents if, or anything incriminating there. And also, you know, Trump has been very vocal on Truth Social to say in all caps and as is his want, you know, the all they had to do was ask us for these documents, you know, and I've I've been a Trump Twitter watcher and follower for a long time. And, yeah. you know, there's and, and I can sort of. Uh, this re- this is the kind of Trump statement that when he says it in this particular way, in this particular tone, he seems I think he believes that to be true. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wouldn't be surprised if the FBI decided they were going to go down there and get a safe cracker and and trash his place and go through Melania's, you know, bedroom uh, you know cabinet, but not, um, you know, but not even bother to say, "Hey, listen, we think uh, you guys have some stuff that you know you shouldn't have taken. Can you turn it over?" Um, it I, it just seems like they're after him.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I would say so. Uh, Let's talk about these Republican calls to defund the FBI. I I just love this. I think this is so much fun, and it's so interesting to follow. I'm all for defunding the FBI. I think there shouldn't be an FBI uh, in the first place. The FBI is nothing more than a political police force, in my view. But the FBI has also been around for 100 years, and it has broad support around the country what do you think the chances are of reform um do you think especially if the the republicans find themselves in charge again that they're that they'll be able to force some kind of of new reform through the fbi
4: do you think we're going to see any changes well you know the most the most famous national police in recent history was the gestapo right <laughs> Um, it's, uh, kind of the same, you know, organizationally very similar and, uh, structurally very similar. Um, I, I, look, I think the, this, this, uh, you know, this Republican call, you know, defund the FBI is not serious. It's a retort. It's a, yeah. a political, it's a political joke to, uh, just, you know, get back, you know, to own the libs and say, you know, well, you want to defund the police. Well, we want to defund the FBI. They're not serious. They're yeah. just, they're just saying it in order to uh, score some cheap uh, social media political points.
0: I think that's probably true. Hey, real quickly, I want to ask you about a, uh, about a comment that former CIA and NSA director Michael Hayden uh, made that, uh, that has appeared in the New York Post. I, I tweeted it, and it's getting some, some traction. It's entitled, Ex-CIA Director Agrees, GOP Most Nihilistic Dangerous Political Force. Uh, he said that, um, well, here's what it was. It was, it was a, a tweet that, uh, that the associate editor of the Financial Times tweeted, Ed Luce. I just actually had breakfast with Ed Luce yesterday. I didn't even realize it was Ed Luce. Anyway, so Ed Luce uh, tweeted, I've covered extremism and violent ideologies around the world over my career. Have never come across a political force more nihilistic, dangerous, and contemptible than today's Republicans. Nothing even close. And then Hayden tweeted, I agree, and I was the CIA director. So I tweeted, so what's that mean, Mike? Does that mean— That you think we should start killing Republicans? Are you going to use drones or assassination teams? Um, So my question to you is, is this really where we are? Or is this just sort of a brainless thing that he tweeted without really thinking about it? Do do people really believe that the Republican Party is the most dangerous force in the world today? Come on.
4: I I don't think uh, you know any real reflection occurred there. Um, You know, it's pretty ahistorical. There was a group called ISIS that seems like it was a little more dangerous and and nihilistic, uh, right? You know, and and is still around. Uh, ISIS K is, uh, you know, I mean, Jesus, Um, yeah, that's an insane thing to say. Also, it's pretty funny coming from a guy who used to run the NSA. Right, Michael Hayden did, right? Which is an organization that literally thinks it's perfectly okay to. counter to its charter, sweep up every single communication on Earth Uh and store it on a giant supercomputer in Nevada. (laughs) That's That's not dangerous at all. That's that's totally cool. I mean, you know, again, these maniacs are putting me in the position of having to stand up for a political party that I, you know, I think I really despise the Republicans and that, uh, you know, in, in my view. Earns the right to be, you know, banned after lying us into the war in Iraq. Uh, you know, uh, current political parties have been banned for far less, um, and yeah. so, you know, I mean, and but still, uh, you know, that's half the country, um, or maybe you know, forty-five percent of the country's registered voters. Um, and there is, you know, there's a legitimate critique there in terms of the uh, anti-science, the uh, the willful. Disregard of the truth, um, the, the you know the lies about the election and so on. That you know, I think what's happening is that liberal democrats and, and their allies and people like you know like Liz Cheney on the right have worked themselves into a lather. Um, but they're you know kind of like you know, the, the, the splinter in your eye kind of thing, they're not seeing the problems with the Democratic Party and the rhetoric that they're adding themselves to this, to the, to this fire. I mean, that's ahistorical and therefore as untruthful as anything the Republicans have said.
0: I want to ask you, Ted, about Alan Weiselberg. He pleaded guilty today to 15 felonies. Now, how this guy gets 15 felony convictions and he ends up with 51 days in jail. I don't know, but that's a whole different subject. So Weisselberg has been the CFO of the Trump Organization for decades. He said he wouldn't testify against Donald Trump, but he will likely testify against the Trump Organization. What does that mean exactly? Is is Donald Trump in trouble in New York because of, uh, of what his company did to avoid paying taxes? Or is he going to get off and the company itself would be charged with uh, crimes?
4: It sounds like that's where things are headed. That latter scenario. I mean, you know, that's the whole purpose of forming uh, a company. You know, they call that's it right. the corporate va- the whole the corporate veil, right? Is to dodge accountability. You know, in the case of the Trumpet uh, organization, anybody who's read about it or studied it knows that you know it's you know, basically it's Donald Trump's doing. It is that there's and there is a doctrine called piercing the corporate veil, but that's in civil law. And where you can sort of say, well, you know, I want to this person used a corporation in order to shield themselves. But in criminal law, if you can only nail the company, uh, it's it's a different matter to nail the 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 executives. Uh, And so, you know, it may be that they're trying to see if they can flip more Trump organization employees or top executives and get them to testify against Trump. And this is just a matter of building their case. I think there's just sort of my theory is, I mean, my my thinking is that they're just following this as far up the chain as they can. And they're taking it one step at a time. And, you know, they're going to see how it goes. And either they get to the former president or they don't.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um. The Iranian government said yesterday that it's ready for an unconditional prisoner swap. This would be the first in nearly four years. Why do you think this is happening now? Because to me, there certainly seems to be no indication that relations between the United States and Iran are improving in any way. Why would they do this? And I'll add, too, that when I first heard about this story, it was in the Israeli press. And so I did a pretty comprehensive search. It's appeared only in the Israeli press, one Middle Eastern newspaper, and at Radio uh, Free Europe Radio Liberty. Why, why isn't this on the, the, the top, uh, you know, above the fold in the New York Times and on CNN?
4: well uh, I would guess probably because they haven't been able those organizations haven't been able to confirm this story um, it doesn't mean that it's not true given the Byzantine nature of the iran- of the Iranian regime and how you know something that might be in the works uh you know might not be in the works um you know you're right john the u s Iran relations you know continue to be terrible, but over the years, the Iranians, not the United States but the Iranians have repeatedly made overtures to try to move toward normalized relations. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think of uh, events like in the early days of the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, 2002, uh, there was a U.S. pilot who crashed in northwestern Afghanistan near Herat. The Iranians uh, rescued him from uh, a Taliban-controlled area and uh, not only recouped uh, the uh, equipment from the plane, but also, of course, the pilot, and then quietly turned him over to the Bush administration, to the Pentagon. You know, just sort of as a goodwill gesture, like, look at us, we're nice. Come on, let's 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 be let's try to do something here. And things like that have happened over and over over the years. Um, I think, with the exception of Donald Trump, briefly saying when he was first became president or right before that he was willing to speak to the Iranians, um, there hasn't really—it's been a one-way street, and uh, the U.S. has just sat on top of these 40-year-old sanctions. And so, I, you know, I think this is probably part—this is—if this is, this, is, if this story is true and verified, then it's—I think it's going to be—we're going to see that it's basically the Iranians trying to, uh, you know, thaw things, mm-hmm. do a little detente here Um, as usual. And, you know, it's up to the Biden administration to pick up the ball.
0: Further to that, um, there was a lot of hope uh, during the Obama administration that because it was transformational, he was the first African-American president, he was young, he was new, he was fresh, that there was a possibility that we could finally reestablish diplomatic relations with the Iranians. And we saw it happen in Cuba, right? Which was a very, very big deal. Uh, We didn't reestablish relations with Iran. Um, And then people thought, well, Donald Trump is so crazy. And we know from history that only Nixon could go to China, that maybe Donald Trump could actually reestablish relations with Iran. Nobody's saying that about about Joe Biden. Nobody. Nobody is saying that Tony Blinken is this transformational um, uh, foreign policy genius. Do you think we're going to have to wait? Not because the Iranians don't necessarily want to reestablish relations, but because intellectually we're just not up to it
4: yet. I don't think it has anything to do with the Iranians or with uh, Joe Biden's fading intellect. Uh, I think it's uh, an issue. It's the Sunni. It's the Sunni Shia thing. The United States has uh, decided is in bed completely with the Sunni. The Sunni Gulf nations and yes. the, and the yep. Saudis. Yep. And uh, and that's where and and the you know people like MBS and others have made it very clear that they won't countenance any kind of rapprochement to yeah. Tehran. And I think that's what it boils down to. If we were, I mean, it's hilarious because we're supposed to be the most powerful nation in the world, but those, but those Sunni states—they're driving the bus in the Middle East. Yes, and um, and they're not letting us. It's kind of like they're like being mean girls, you know? They're not letting us make new friends here. Um, I think everybody realizes that the U.S. and Iran would mutually benefit from a reestablishment of relations. I mean, you know, there's all sorts of. For example, a pipeline project from the Caspian Sea that's been uh, on ice for decades because of uh, stupid stuff. This, these, this stupid situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, if we were to, what we really need to see is a realignment where we say, you know, we're we're really not. You know, we still like you Sunni guys, but we're going to talk to the Shias too.
0: There's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't. Uh, I want to ask you another Iran question, too, if I may. The, the final Iranian language on the JCPOA renegotiations has been submitted to the European Union. And the U.S., much to everybody's shock, has no objection. Does that mean that the possibility of an actual agreement is finally upon us?
4: It does feel like that. Um, don't you think, John? It I mean, does. I think it does. It, it, it does.
0: It so does, yeah. I think.
4: There's just nothing in the way of it. Um, it's, that is something that's sort of post-Trump. Um, you know that, That's sort of a rebuke to Trump. It is. So I, think, so I think that's sort of why it's politically palatable to the Democrats. And I think they know they need to do it before November uh, when the you know, expected clocking in at least the House, right. probably the Senate as well, is going to occur.
0: Right. You know, there are so many uh, people here in town that say it doesn't matter because any treaty would have to go through the Senate. But if you recall, the the uh, Obama administration didn't treat this as a treaty. It treated it as um, an agreement, which, you know, was just sleight of hand, but it actually worked. So this does not have to go to the U.S. Senate for uh, three quarters uh, approval. Uh, it just requires a signature. And would be a, a bilateral agreement between the United States and Iran. So we'll see. Uh, Ted Rawl, thanks for joining us. Thanks, John. Ted is an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is The Stringer, and he's the co-host of the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis. You're listening to Political Misfits. Stay tuned, and we'll come back with another guest.
1: Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Whitty. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we have a conversation about Canada, disability, and uh, medically assisted suicide coming up. But John, I did want to see uh, if you had seen this headline from Time recently, uh, just today, saying uh, the GOP borrowed a Soviet skill and disappeared Liz Cheney. (laughs) So they're still doing it. Anything bad is a thing that we learned from Russia. Russia, as a baseline, preferably the Soviets. So it's not just that she lost favor. And that the guy who's the head of the party decided he didn't like her. She decided to go against him. People didn't like that. And also, she seems to have not spent most of her war chest on the race she was actually running in. But no, no, no. It's the GOP learning those uh, those wily Soviet tricks.
0: Unbelievable, isn't it?
1: I mean, tra- sadly not. You, know, you keep thinking maybe they've stopped this, but it keeps coming back. So that I couldn't I couldn't hold on to yeah, that and, one any longer. And it's the,
0: funny. The truth is, you know, this kind of thing happens all the time in politics. Every few years, there's some big feud that comes to a head and, and two titans clash and then one loses and goes away. This is just the nature of politics.
1: Nope. Anything bad. Money. Lo- there was a story a couple years ago, I think, that was trying to suggest that financial crime came to the United States from Russia, like in the 1980s and 90s. Uh, just incredible. John, you know, we can do no wrong. Nothing bad has ever originated in the United States. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's what you have to keep in mind if you're to understand our, uh, our you know, mass media. All right. Let's get to this topic that I have been wanting to talk about for some time now. It is this slow-rolling crisis in Canada. Um, Over the past year, people have been sounding the alarm about Canada's medical assistance in dying program, not necessarily because of a principled objection to euthanasia, but because they fear the program could end up causing disabled people to end their lives unnecessarily, not because they would want to die under any circumstances and that death is you know, that death is near at hand anyway, and they want to choose the time and and circumstances of their departure, but because the support they get from their government is too meager to allow them to live in comfort and dignity, and they feel like there are no other options. And so joining us to get into what exactly is happening and what people are afraid of uh, in our neighbor to the north is Anthony Omeni. He's a Toronto-based writer and co-host of the Unredacted podcast. Anthony, thanks for joining us. Are you able to hear me? Oh yeah, there we are. Now we can hear you. Thanks for joining us.
5: Okay, all right. No worries, no worries.
1: Um, I, I want to talk about a couple of components of this story and kind of go through them like layer by layer. Because first, you have these assertions that um, Canada's support for its disabled population is just not enough. They don't give people enough money to be able to live um, and take care of their their physical and mental well being. Second are the specific euthanasia policies that Canada has adopted that make the process available to way more people than people who are actually dying. And then finally, you have these horrifying reports of medical staff, unprompted, suggesting euthanasia to parents or to the, patients, uh, the, the parents of patients who haven't asked to be informed about it. And so I wanted to start with just the state of disability support in Canada. There was an AP story from a week ago noting that No province or territory provides a disability benefit income that is above the poverty line. Uh, Sometimes uh, these disability benefits are as low as uh, 850 Canadian dollars a month, which is a little over 650 US dollars, which is less than half the amount the government provided to people who couldn't work during the COVID 19 pandemic. And so I want to start with just what does this level of benefit mean? For disabled people in Canada, especially people who can't work?
5: Well, that's a lot to... Uh, there's. I hate the word unpack so much. It's really just <laughs> like there's there's a ton of t- stuff to explain to understand the Canadian context regarding disability, assistance in dying, and so on. So I think probably a good place to start is the uh, the COVID-19 lockdown. Uh, so once mm-hmm. uh, everything began locking down um, in, in 2020, uh, there was a uh, push for some sort of... Um, government assistance to people that wouldn't be able to uh, to go to work, that were going to lose out on income, et cetera. Now, a lot of Americans see, uh, seem to think that that was a, like a universal basic income that was being provided to Canadians. It wasn't. It was basically payment in lieu of uh, your paycheck. So if you weren't able to go to work mm-hmm. um, because you were locked down, or perhaps if you were laid off, then there was a, a stipend that was paid out to you, a couple thousand dollars a month, uh, we called that SERB, uh, the COVID Emergency Relief Benefit, and you qualified for it if you had been employed previous to the lockdowns. However, if you were underemployed, if you were unemployed, but also if you were disabled, you were not entitled to the benefit. The problem with disabled people was uh, everyone was told, "Hey, you should just go ahead and apply for SERB, and if you don't, it turns out you don't qualify. Well, it'll be added to your taxable income, so you can just pay it back." Uh, with next year's taxes, problem with that is, mm-hmm. if you're able to find work again, or once the uh, the lockdowns end, you can go back to work and earn an income. That's something that you're able to settle up, and you can manage your expenses accordingly. But if you are disabled and you didn't have work in the first place, and for mm-hmm. over sixty percent of disabled Canadians, they're not, they don't have gainful employment. Then there, where was the money going to come from? So on average, mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be, it's roughly around fifteen hundred dollars a month, Canadian, that you get. Uh, across uh, provincial disability benefits. But the problem is, even for like a one bedroom apartment, the median in Canada is close to $2,000 a month. So you're, you're already behind the ball. And mm-hmm. on top of that, it's very expensive to be disabled. Whether it's your medications, mm-hmm. whether it's specialized equipment, whether it's medical care that doesn't come from, prevent, that's not covered by provincial bodies and has to be paid out of pocket, whether through insurance plans that you might be dependent on your parents' plan, or if you're not, then you have to pay out of pocket. There aren't a lot of good options. So the problem with that was that disabled people across this country, people with visible and invisible disabilities, people like myself, were saying that this is putting us in a horrendous situation because there's no point to apply for CERB. I mean, you can, but then you're gonna be stuck with a huge tax bill later on. In all likelihood, if it Mm -hmm. turns out, like because you're asked questions as to whether you are employed and if you're not, uh, then you're just not going to get the benefit. So at the very same Mm -hmm. time, in February of 2021, There was a uh, push to expand the already legalized euthanasia environment. So, uh, people who were experiencing, let's say, mental health disabilities, people like myself. So, I have, you know, I have, uh, you know, uh, I have uh, neurocognitive disorders. And it took me a very long time to get diagnosed properly and to get treated properly. Thankfully, I have that now. But if this policy, if the expanded policy that they passed, in 2021, had existed during this like Sisyphean hurdle I was I was going through to try and get diagnosed properly and get treated. I likely would have opted out. I probably would have asked for the assisted suicide option. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be married. I wouldn't have beautiful children. My family would have never happened. And the problem now is that not only did it expand so that people whose underlying illness was mental health disorders, on top of that. They allowed the medical practitioner to be the one to suggest to the patient, hey, is this an option that you've considered? Well, here's some information on it. Mm-hmm. So, and, and this tracks like it tracks very linearly with Canada's history of promoting eugenics. We're, we're less than 50 years removed from eugenics boards existing in this country. As a matter of fact, one of the crown jewels of Canadian policy, something that we're very proud of and that we often hold over Americans' heads, is that we have... Nationalized healthcare. We have single payer healthcare. Mm-hmm. It's not universal; not everything is covered. But you can expect that if you end up at the hospital, or if you have to go to your doctor's, or if you have to go to a walk-in clinic because you're experiencing some sort of pain or symptoms that you don't recognize, you don't have to come out of pocket mm-hmm. to pay for it. But the problem is, the founder or the uh, the, the progenitor of nationalized healthcare, Tommy Douglas, uh, a, 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 pol- a politician in the Canadian Prairies. Well, he was also eugenicist. So eugenics is deeply woven into the fabric of our healthcare policy. Eugenicists mm-hmm. were also you know, some uh, eugenicists were also uh, highly rec- highly regarded uh, people in the psychological community that came up with the DSM. There are still eugenicists mm-hmm. that have a hand in creating the uh, the updated versions of the DSM. So the problem is we act mm-hmm. like eugenics simply doesn't exist in this country, or we're pa- we're way past that, and it's not. Eugenics does factor into how disabled people are treated in this country. And one of them is that there was no push to expand these services to disabled people. Canada is one of the worst countries where it comes to disability benefits and accessibility, simply being able to move about your environment. This country was not built with disabled people in mind. And Mm -hmm. when they expanded the bill or were proposing expanding the bill, there were Dozens of advocates for disabled people that, that spoke to members of the Canadian Senate and begged them tearfully to reconsider before they passed this bill, or at least try to close up some loopholes. At the very least, like, don't have a doctor come to you or a nurse come to you and say, hey, have you considered assisted suicide? When nobody was talking about it, right. they simply want better care. And uh, yeah. they, they went ahead as is. They listened to these people plead with them tearfully, said, we see you, we hear you, and then went ahead and passed the framework as is. So what we have happening now, and this has happened uh, several times in the last few weeks, I mean, we had one example of a woman in Toronto that uh, was not able to find housing that would accommodate for the fact that she has major chemical sensitivities. So the kinds Mm -hmm. of uh, cleaning, uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the cleaning solvents, uh, everything from the, uh, the, the the finish on the floors and the paint and everything else that you use in the walls. These are things that most people don't notice, mm-hmm. but if you have chemical sensitivities, it can make your life unbearable. She was not able mm-hmm. to get accommodated for housing through her disability benefit, so she opted for assisted suicide. Uh, a, a man last week, or about a week and a half ago, uh, who came down with a severe neurological condition was, was in a hospital and he was advocating for his own care, where he was asking for some sort of home care so that he didn't have to stay in the hospital. It was going to cost him roughly $1,500 a day when his benefits ran out. And what he was asking for was, is there any way that I can possibly get home care? He's not able to feed, clothes, change, take care of himself, barely able to get out of bed. And again, a, a nurse uh, had conversations with him, very inappropriate ones, not just once, but multiple times. He ended up having to record them and then pass them on to the news. Mm-hmm. Where he it seemed like he mm-hmm. was being pressured to opt for maid. And then just recently, yeah, uh, yeah a, a veteran. Wait,
1: hey, can I? Yeah, sorry, go Anthony, ahead. Anthony, let me interrupt you for a sure, second, because sure. I want to just lay out um, it, the parameters of the policy as I understand them. But yeah, I yeah. want to keep going through these examples, because they're horrifying. But so one of the things that, I, as I understand it, triggered the attention of a couple of um, UN human rights experts yeah, yeah. is this expansion in 2021 that removed the requirement that uh, someone applying for medically assisted suicide be expected to die in the reasonable foreseeable future. And so this opened it up to not people who have terminal illnesses, <clears throat> but people who are, you know, whatever, li- living in conditions that they find to be intolerable. Uh, intolerable. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently it is in in March next year, people with mental disorders will be allowed assisted suicide, um, which, again, people find really upsetting. There was another there was an example of a, a man who his only reason for choosing assisted suicide on his paperwork was hearing loss. And his relatives have been saying, look, our, our brother, our uncle, he has depression. He's not wearing his hearing aids. You know, this is not someone who needs to be assisted into the afterlife, uh, but someone who maybe needs to have a, a, a mental illness treated. Um, the other thing that I wanted to ask you, you know, I, I also have a list here of I examples, I mean, but I'll let you go through examples, them because they're horrifying. But, but one of the things yeah. that accompanies uh, uh, yeah, them sorry. often <laughs> Is, is just really poor care. You know, see so yeah. people documenting sleeping on dirty sheets, having feces on the floor, having bed sores, being served rotten food for weeks and weeks, and, and then being approached by someone who says, well, have you considered just dying? Yeah. Uh, and so I wanted to also ask about that, you know, like I- I- inadequate care shouldn't be what drives you to suicide.
5: Well, unfortunately, inadequate care is, is the reality for disabled people in Canada. It is hell um, I have friends that are well-known disability advocates, and they've dealt f- from everything from straight up ableism and discrimination from, uh, from uh, medical providers uh, to having difficulty getting consistent services and then for people that live in um, hospices et etc, even getting somebody to come in and change your bed sheets can be a hassle because for for the workers it's just a matter of when we swing by your room and based on our routine. So it's entirely centered around the bureaucracy and not around the needs of the patient. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately that that is a daily reality and it's, it's the same as in any other sort of uh, you know, developed democracy where there is a, uh, a, a public system, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's a post office or, and oftentimes healthcare tends to be the big target where when, when uh, premiers, because healthcare in Canada is managed at a provincial level, not the federal level, so when premiers see that they're up for re election, what they'll do is they'll scale back on healthcare expenditures, thus throwing the most vulnerable patients into unlivable physical conditions so that they're able to balance their budget. Mm-hmm. So the federal government, for example, gave Ontario billions of dollars to spend on healthcare because COVID-19 being not only a mass death, but a mass disabling event, there was foresight that there would be many more disabled Canadians by the time we see the uh, the plateau of the pandemic. That actually happened, but the money wasn't spent on the patients. It was put towards balancing the budget. And unfortunately, that what that led to you was more than 10,000 Canadians uh, opted for MAID and were granted it. So more than 10,000 Canadians died last year as a result of assisted death. So out of all of the deaths that happened in Canada in 2021, 3.3% of them were assisted deaths. And 81% of applications were approved. Wow.
1: That's a lot. And also, AP notes that that was an increase by about a third from the previous year. So the policy has had immediate repercussions.
5: Yeah, exactly. And of of course, you know, we've seen what's been happening with inflation. We've seen what's been happening with uh, people's income, with the precarity of work. Like As I said, most disabled people in Canada cannot work. Not a matter of do not, but cannot. And of those people who mm-hmm. are working, they're the first ones to oftentimes to get the axe uh, when there are layoffs. And for people that mm-hmm. uh, end up coming down with COVID-19, especially long COVID, well, they often come out of it, it when they survive. Uh, they come out of it with uh, symptoms and chronic conditions that leave them dis- disabled. Mm-hmm. And there's no mm-hmm. conversation about what we can do To make this country more accessible, simply like being able to get from your home to possibly your work to the grocery store, et cetera, none of that has changed whatsoever. Talks about increasing disability benefits has been a pittance. Just we're talking about like a Mm -hmm. difference of, you know, $50 to $100 per month. It's been absolutely Mm -hmm. nothing. And what we're saying here to disabled people is that, listen, as long as the economy is chugging along, you're disposable. And that's pretty much the way that it's always been. But what really irks me about this is that it's offered to disabled people under the guise of compassion. As if, well, listen, Mm -hmm. we did something for you. Um, We gave you the ability to kill yourself without the rest of us feeling bad about it. Ah, man. Wow.
1: I ask you also to clarify how this is supposed to be suggested or or not to people because I wasn't you know these uh, many examples of people saying a, a person working in a hospital came over in one case it was a, a man who went to the VA
5: yeah yeah that was Roger um, for Fuller, yeah.
1: treatment for a yeah for treatment for a, a traumatic brain injury or something and said a VA employee said well hey how about medically assisted suicide yeah. but I'm not sure what are the oh, rules no, for it how it injury. can be brought up our staff.
5: Yeah, Yeah, sorry. No, you're right. It was it was a brain injury. My mistake. But yeah, um, yeah. Unfortunately, he has a. It's classified as an injury, but it was a degenerative brain disorder. And so his, uh, uh, you know, he lives in London, Ontario, which is you know a mid-sized city, uh, not a small one. Not as if there aren't services available that uh, that would be able to help him manage his condition. But mm-hmm. he received no help from the bureaucracy whatsoever. And the most frequent response that he got, uh, you know, according to his lawyer, was, "Hey, have you just?" And the way that they do this, too, is he's he's, and he says to them, if you listen to the recorded conversation, he says, I this is not what I'm asking for. I'm asking for like, I don't want to die. I want to live. I just want to be able to live a tolerable life. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm asking for. And they keep coming back to him with, well, I mean, the ball is in your court, but this option is here. So when you inveigle somebody like that or when you, you know, when you uh, when you pressure them like that. And let the, it, you're basically foreclosing the possibility of them actually receiving life-saving or life-altering care. What you're saying to them is that mm-hmm. their life is worth less than anybody else's, because that's the only option that you're coming back with. I, I imagine that you go to mm-hmm. imagine you go to your doctor for a checkup, and they say to you, "Okay, well, you know, unfortunately, you do have I don't know some sort of a, a condition. Let, let's say let's say a, a condition that you can actually overcome. So let's say that's like is cancer, right?" And Mm -hmm. it's a treatable cancer. It's not, you know, like stage four. It's a treatable cancer. And you say, listen, I'm going to require additional care. My workplace doesn't cover all of these benefits. There's a possible alternative. Can I apply to, say, like the Trillium Foundation, which is, you know, a healthcare foundation that does help people that have to uh, get uh, specialized cancer care? Can I apply to the Trillium Foundation? Mm -hmm. And many people do this on a yearly basis. And imagine the doctor... Or their uh, assistant comes back to you and says, uh, I guess you could do that, but have you, have you thought of just letting yourself die? And that is what yeah. disabled people are faced with on a daily basis in this country.
1: So talk to me about, you know, obviously it has generated some attention. It's generated some media attention over the past year, uh, but it hasn't stopped these, these sort of the expansion of this program. So I'm wondering, you know, well, what kind of organized resistance is there to these policies? <laughs>
5: I mean, there's organized resistance in the sense that um, disabled people are uh, raising their voices, that they're writing, they're members of parliament, they are, uh, they're, they're writing to the Senate, they're writing articles that go out in mass media. None of it is actually changing the status quo, because unfortunately, the reason that we have the expansion of assisted suicide is due to Supreme Court decisions by the federal Supreme Court of Canada and by the, the Quebec Supreme Court. So the reason that the framework was expanded in the first place in 2021 was to make sure that the laws were in accordance with the Supreme Court decision. So a lot of people have been asking, okay, well, what, what do we do about this framework? How can we change this framework so that it accommodates uh, disabled people and that we're not basically, you know, pushing them off a cliff? And the answer is, well, it's not the framework that has to be changed. It, it's the framework of disability accommodation in Canada. The thing is, I don't even like using the word accessibility because when you talk about accessibility, what you basically mean is we need to change our like we have to inconvenience ourselves to accommodate people with disabilities. So whether it's in the workplace, mm-hmm. whether it's in commercial spaces, the library, the grocery store, the drugstore, etc., the movie theater. Mm-hmm. Well, all right. Listen, if we have to let you in, we'll do some we'll do something to accommodate you. But this off, this mm-hmm. has the most severe repercussions in the workplace because workplaces often are not accessible. And that's because disabled people are not considered to be contributors. They're not considered to be productive bodies. They don't contribute to capitalism in the same way that everybody else does and under the conditions that are the most convenient for shareholders, for management, etc. So for mm-hmm. the most part, disabled people are an afterthought. When you, when you go to your local community center and you press the button to open the automatic door and then the double door, opens let's say the left door at the front and then the right door at the end and you have to navigate around that with your wheelchair it's Mm -hmm. it's 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 a joke like when i when i talk to people who use wheelchairs like do you get the blackest humor out of people who are wheelchair users people even say you know we we built uh we built this uh the store or we built this community center or we built this uh, public space to accommodate wheelchairs and they'll say well that's nice that you accommodated my wheelchair, but what about me? <laughs> I just use a wheelchair. Did you build it for <laughs> Did you build it for this piece of equipment, or did you build it for me, the person that's actually using these services? And unfortunately, on right. you know, it, it, it's really sad because I I really want to say like, oh, well, you know, here are some very simple solutions. We have to pass new mm-hmm. accommodation laws in this country, like you know, laws that uh, govern accommodation for people with disabilities, so that in workplaces and public spaces, but also commercial spaces that there have to be redesigns uh, so that people can actually move in and out of your space, move in and out of the workplace, do their work, be able to contribute like everybody else. There's, there's the, mm-hmm. the framework for accommodation and accessibility. But then there's also the need to simply make sure that when your disability check comes in, you're not choosing between, say, your medication or the life-saving care that you need and being able to cover your rent. Like, it's an absolutely impossible yeah. condition that most people are put into in this country where they can't even cover their rent, never mind the additional expenses. I think sometimes people think that, well, you know, $1,500 in, in a month, that's that's not so bad. I mean, but they're thinking of that in addition to their own income. No. And the, the unfortunate fact of the matter is, on top of the normal day-to-day expenses, i.e. your heating of your home, your electricity, uh, whether it's like buying groceries If you drive a car paying for gas or using public transit, like on top of those quotidian quotidian expenses on a day-to-day basis, you're also faced with the cost of your care on top of that. So it is more expensive to be disabled in this country, and yet disabled people make less than anybody else as a demographic. So it's a bit of a sick joke.
1: It is. I, Anthony Omeni, I'm, I'm really glad you joined us for this conversation, as uh, as sad as it was. We are running out of time, so I want to just ask you to tell our listeners where they can go to find more of your work.
5: Sure. Yep. Uh, so my name is uh, Q Anthony Omeni. Uh, oftentimes, you can find my work in The Globe and Mail in Canada. Uh, and I also host the Unredacted podcast with Glenn Greenwald, for the most part, talking about uh, U.S. politics, Canadian politics. And uh, global <laughs> intelligence and warfare. So you know the the topics that everybody Fun. seems to enjoy, but nobody likes to talk about.
1: Yes. All the good stuff. Hey, we love it here. So we'll have to, uh, we'll have to have you on again soon. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it.
5: Thank you so much for having me.
1: All right, John, we have five minutes. You want to talk about this, uh, scandalous I, I Cambodian. Do. Art I do. This is actually
0: big news. It, it's not only appeared in the, in the New York Times and the Washington post today, but it was picked up by the art press, art news magazine, um, art forum. This is a, this is a very big deal.
1: Basically, Cambodia is accusing the Metropolitan Museum of Art Mm -hmm. of having a bunch of stolen artwork. And it seems like, according to this New York Times story, that they are basically blaming this on uh, this this British Thai businessman, Douglas A.J. Latchford, who was a dealer in Khmer art. Uh, a scholar, a collector, and, of course, was later indicted as a smuggler of a bunch of Khmer artifacts. And uh, the story goes into uh, it, the Cambodians apparently in, brought in the U.S. DOJ yeah. to press for the return of this artwork. And so, uh, some of what has uh, alerted them to where this art might be found is apparently this reformed looter named Tok Teek who identified 33 artifacts in the Met collection as objects that he personally remembered plundering and selling to intermediaries who then did business with this guy Latchford. Yes. Um, The Met is kind of standing off and saying, no, 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 Uh, you know, we've looked into it. We've updated our, our records. We have a good track record of returning items that we've learned to have been looted, but they're refusing to share their internal documents with the Cambodian government that is leading this charge to get these back. The Cambodian officials uh, have turned evidence over, uh, evidence of looting to the federal authorities in the US, but not to the museum. So it's like neither side really trusts each other and they're trying to work mm-hmm. through uh, the DOJ to solve this. But I mean, here's the thing uh, I, I've spent time in Cambodia, right? Yeah. It's a beautiful country. Uh, It's a great, you know, it has lots of incredible things to see. It is also it was just absolutely devastated Mm. in the 70s and 80s. And I do think and I don't know if this actually is going to end up sounding um, paternalistic, John, but like. If you had been wandering through Cambodia in the past couple of decades, uh, wanting to buy art, I just don't know if you can look at a country that is was in the circumstances Cambodia was in, and find any ethical way to legally purchase and haul away its heritage, mm-hmm. you know. A country that was also bombed illegally by the United States, mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, that has saw its society, society just completely torn asunder, that is still incredibly poor, incredibly underdeveloped, uh, that the US is still trying to get, I think it's something like $78 million back from in, the, in some loan from the 70s. And so it shows to me also just how I think the line between Looting and smuggling and legal acquisition is actually a pretty fuzzy one in, in a lot of cases.
0: Yes. And we see this all over the world, especially uh, in wartime or the immediate aftermath of war.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Sotheby's and Christie's in London and in Switzerland have both been accused of trafficking in looted Iraqi artifacts and Syrian artifacts. Um, We're seeing Libyan artifacts from the Greco-Roman period popping up for auction now with no provenance at all. This is quite a common thing. And uh, the trend is for countries to seek the return of their national heritage. You know, there's been an international agreement on antiquities protection since 1917. And so the antiquities that we see uh, for sale Uh, either in the United States or in the UK or wherever they happen to be for sale, you have to show a provenance indicating that they left the country of origin before 1917, or that you have the permission of the government to export it. Mm -hmm. The problem is that even the big players like the Metropolitan Museum of Art are not always honest. And so that's why we have to have, units at the FBI, for example, or at Customs and uh, Border Protection that follow these issues.
1: Yeah, it is a really fascinating story. There's way more to get into, but of course, we're out of time. Indeed. Maybe we can pick it up again tomorrow. I want to say thanks to all of our guests. Of course, thanks to our producers and engineers. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witty, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.